this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon I will talk and we will explore on practice from the perspective of a text of a talk by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. The text that I have is from the 17th of November 1957. But as he says in the beginning, this was a preaching at a church. He says, I want to use as a subject from which to preach this morning a very familiar subject, and it is a familiar to you, because I have preached from this subject twice before, to my knowing in this pulpit, this was in Montgomery, Alabama, but he also says, I try to make it something of a custom to preach from this passage of Scripture at least once a year, adding new insights that I develop along the way out of new experience. Therefore, though it's there's the basic content is, content is the same, new insights and new experiences naturally make for new illustrations. So, He titles this, Loving Your Enemies. My intention is to explore this, some of what he says, from a practice perspective for us, and also to do it not just from the way he does it, but also, I'll say, to expand it to include, use our practice perspective in the Buddha Dharma, using Dhammapada, Bodhisattva's vow, and other aspects of our practice, and also from a Jewish perspective, using the Torah, In this case, particularly the one of the Hebrew Bibles uh, texts of the first five books, the book of Leviticus or Vayikra in Hebrew. So I will do this. somewhat today and then stop and then we'll continue further tomorrow and in exploring this I want us all to really grapple with what how does this arise as our practice life because otherwise it just becomes some theoretical comparative religion type stuff and that's not at all important for here, for now, for us.
When I was a kid, I was brought up, as many of you know, in a Hasidic, Orthodox, Jewish community environment. We used to have a song that we sang, and it went, Via hafta, via hafta, lideyacha, via hafta, lideyacha, kemaycha. And it then would go on and on with just those phrases. Via hafta, via hafta, lideyacha. And we'd sing and dance and repeat that over and over. What that means is via hafta means you shall love or love the your neighbor as yourself. Of course as a kid I didn't know I mean I understood that because I understood the text as actually probably my second language and English is my third language if I do that. Uh, count it that way because I was fluent and literate in that before I was even fluent in English, much less literate. Um, so that text, the Ahafta Lirayacha Kamaycha, comes, as I said, from Leviticus, the book Vayikra in the section Kedoshim, holy, being holy. And the text is it starts the previous sentence ta- starts um, you should not hate your brother, your sister in your heart. And then the next Sentence begins Hashem. It says Ani thou or you should not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your neighbor, your people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then it ends with the Ani Hashem, or actually it says Ani Adonai, but usually you don't pronounce that. It's a, which is also the first of the ten, what's known as the Ten Commandments, which starts Anoichi Hashem. I am, and this is an Aichi and an Ani is the same word. I am God. So in a sense it uses that to reinforce this. You should love your neighbor, your fellow person, whoever's the fellow next to you, as yourself. Now in a way you could say, oh that's easy. But it's not so easy. What does it mean? As yourself. What does it mean? As yourself. How do you see 
everyone else as just yourself. We talked about this yesterday and the day before. Much less love them as yourself. So, how do this? In a way, it almost seems impossible. It almost seems impossible. How do we make sense with this? Well, I'll come back to this in a little bit, but first I want to go to the Dhammapada. Some of you might be familiar with the Dhammapada. The Dhammapada is a collection of, what should I say, phrases or aphorisms which are attributed to the Buddha, but they're part of longer um, um, incidents, and they're extracted, so you just have the aphorism without um, the, so you just have the basic teaching without the discussion of such and such occurred, such and such occurred, such and such occurred, and then the Buddha said such and such, or the Buddha said such and such, When, but in the text, so you have the basic aphorism, and then elaborated on that is, it occurred in so-and-so, and so-and-so did this. So I want to read just a few of these. It's in Pali. I'm not going to read Pali. I won't impose that on you. He abused me, he beat me, he defeated me, he robbed me. Close quote. In those who harbor such thoughts, hatred is not appeased. He abused me, he beat me, he defeated me, he robbed me. Close quote. In those who do not harbor such thoughts, hatred is appeased. Hatreds never cease through hatred in this world. Through love alone they cease. This is an eternal law. The others, the which would mean the quarrelsome people, know not that in this quarrel, quarreling we perish. Those of them who realize it have their quarrels calmed thereby. Or to put it a slightly different translations, others do not know that here we must restrain ourselves. So, so that is one uh, uh, example of something in the Dhammapada, which in a sense correlates, is similar to, and in a sense requires us to practice with loving hatred, um, hatred. loving when there is hatred 
turning it to love. What does that mean? How do we do it? Or, of course, we could also say non-anger. Or, as some of you are familiar with, metta, loving-kindness. Loving-kindness. So, in place of love, where it says, through love alone, hatred seeks. We could also translate that word metta into loving-kindness alone. Hatred seeks. This is an eternal law or a fundamental principle. And of course, many of you are familiar with how the Bodhisattva vow, Bodhisattva's vow that we recite at various times, also touches on this matter. Even though he, she turns against us, Now, Martin Luther King, and I won't continue to use his title every time I mention his name, so I did it the first time, and please consider it not disrespectful, but simply making it, um, having mentioned it once, let that cover all those other times. So he cites, but I say unto you, and this is, he's quoting Jesus, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. And he says, many would say this is an extremely difficult command and would even go so far as to say it just isn't possible to move it into an actual practice. Nevertheless, he's going to say it is love that will save our world and our civilization, love even for enemies. He says, yes, it is hard to love your enemies. Those who seek to defeat us, those who say evil things about us. It is painfully hard, pressingly hard, but So he's going to set forth how he sees that this loving your enemies is our fundamental practice. But before we go more in that, I want to go back to the text in the Torah, since in a way 
that's also where Jesus starts from, which it was is his basic texts, and that therefore, though Martin Luther King doesn't cite that, but cites in the Christian Bible, the Christian Bible, in fact cites this from the Hebrew Bible, but then wants to differentiate themselves and say, well, but we're going further. But of course, in that sense, they also uh, sometimes um, distort the Hebrew Bible in order to show their difference. But we'll leave that matter aside, and I just want to go back here. Notice that First, it starts with You should not hate your brother. In your heart, it's not only hating. Now, of course, saying you should not hate is one thing. First step is to discover that despite someone telling us not to hate, how, when it comes up for us, how natural it seems to us. How natural sometimes it seems to us to hate. In fact, how natural it seems to us to want to take vengeance That's almost the corollary of hate. We might not call it vengeance. We might call it, well, I've got to say it back to them. I've got to make sure they know. I can't let them continue. What does it mean? Thou shalt not hate. As you saw, the Buddha himself says, hate doesn't get taken care of by more hate. Hate doesn't get taken care of by more hate. And yet, what do we notice for ourselves? Even if it's, quote, good reason for hate, none of these say, don't hate unless you have a good reason, then it's okay. Don't hate if you don't have a good reason. says different ways they talk about the poison of hate the poison of hate and yet when it arises that really has to be our practice life focus to notice how and where we hate or how and where we then add on to that well I got to get my revenge we might not say revenge because we're not so extreme we just say well I need to show them or I can't let them or when you look at (coughs) excuse me In fact, 
sometimes what <coughs> what we hate are no, no, it's okay. What we hate are aspects of our own life, aspects of our own body, mind, thoughts, feelings, that we shouldn't feel this way. We shouldn't experience this. The world at the moment shouldn't be like that. And then we take it a step further in this text and talk about loving others, loving neighbors as yourself, as yourself. Of course, this assumes that we love ourselves, or it assumes even more that it's natural to love ourselves. Natural to love ourself, except that we sometimes have problems when we say that others are not myself, therefore it's okay not to love them, whoever they are. Whoever they are is not myself, and therefore it's okay to not love them. It's okay to not love them. And one of the fundamental points that Dr. King brings up first he wants to emphasize the importance of seeing that love is not like love is greater than like, but love at the same time does not require that we like what someone does, like how they are, like is something different than love, or even more, He says, love is the refusal to defeat any individual. It is, as he puts it, creative understanding goodwill for all. But he wants to start us a little differently. He wants to start us by saying, look, he says, in order to love your enemies, or even to love your friends, you must begin by analyzing yourself. And he says, though 
It might be strange to you to do it. Nevertheless, now he says, now, quote, I'm aware that some people will not like you, not because of something you've done to them, but they just won't like you. Some people aren't going to like the way you walk. Some people are not going to like the way you talk. Some people aren't going to like you because you can do your job better than they can do theirs. Some people aren't going to like you because other people like you and because you're popular, because you're well-liked. They aren't going to like you. Some people aren't going to like you because your hair is a little shorter than theirs or your hair is a little longer than theirs because your skin is a little brighter than theirs or because your skin is a little darker than theirs. Some people aren't going to like you. They're going to dislike you not because of something you've done, but because of the various jealous reactions and other reactions that are so prevalent in human nature. Or, We must face the fact that an individual might dislike us because of something that we've done deep down in the past. Some personality attribute that we possess. Something we've done deep down in the past and we've forgotten about. But that aroused the hate response. That's why he says, Begin with yourself. Begin with yourself. Or, as he quotes in the Christian aphorism, which some of you know, how is it that you see the splinter in your brother's eyes but fail to see the plank in your own eye? There's different versions of this English translation of the original. So he says, we begin to look, we begin to love our enemies and love those persons that hate us, whether in collective life or individual life, by looking at ourselves. But, and here is where main thrust of what he's going to say is something, a second thing that an individual must do in seeking to love his enemies is to discover the element of good in his enemies. And every time you begin to hate that person, think of, or think of hating that person, realize that there is some good there And look at those good points which will overbalance the bad points. But most of all, he says, when you rise to this level of redemptive goodwill for all, You begin to love 
not because they are likable, but because God loves them. You look at every person, he says man in this text, but you love him because you know God loves him. And he might be the worst person you've ever seen. That's why he says, the passage says, love your enemy. It's not like. Like is a sentimental thing, an affectionate thing. There are a lot of people that I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me, what they say about me, their attitudes, things they've done. But, he says, you love everybody because God loves them. You refuse to do anything that will defeat an individual because you have agape, Greek form of redemptive goodwill love in your soul. And here you come to the point that you love the individual who does the evil deed even while hating the deed that that person does. Even while hating the deed that that person does. Now, in a way this is simple to say, more difficult for us to do. Because when we notice deeds that people do, we notice the deeds in terms of how we relate, react, reflect, believe about that deed. And in a sense, we cease to see the person and instead we see the deed and our likes and dislikes of the person. Our, if I say it, attachment reactions to that blind us to the person And that becomes another point in the, both the difficulty and the way to go beyond the hatred. Go beyond the hatred. But let me come back to loving your neighbor. Again, I come back to it because loving your neighbor and loving your enemy, in a way, though one seems easy and one seems hard, they're not that different because of the love your neighbor, not just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. If we can see that, then we can also see love your enemy as yourself. Love your enemy as yourself. So what does that mean, as yourself? The way this connects with our looking yesterday at this matter, where 
a Zen ancestor says. Not holding self, not having self, and yet every nothing that is not self, everything that you see is only self. Everything you see, only self. What does that mean? As yourself. Not just love your neighbor, but love your neighbor as yourself. And then, of course, your neighbor is everyone, everything that you encounter. As yourself is as is natural to love yourself. Not because it's something you try to do, but because it's the natural functioning of being who you are. So what is this natural functioning loving yourself? In a way, when we talk about it in the Bodhisattva's vow, we make it very clear. When we see this universe that we are, that we live, that we encounter, it is all our awakened life. Any event, any moment, any place which allows us to extend, encourages us, supports us to extend tender care with respectful hearts. Now, though we say that, we see if we practice the many ways that we refuse to extend tender care and if we stay present, we can discover how, where we're caught, not in order to get rid of it, but because in discovering it, we see it for the figment of imagination that it is, which means that it need not blind us, it need not keep us from being this very life that we are. I don't have to say what that is. We discover it by being what it is. Oh, I've been talking too much and I barely scratched the surface. So, I want us to explore this together rather than me lecture you or so, I will put aside my talking for a little bit now and we can explore this together. And as I said, I will continue this tomorrow. There's more to the Martin Luther King text. I will say that um, after Sashin, we usually put on the talk on the website. We'll also put a link 
to both a written version of, of the text from Martin Luther King and also an audio version. Um, as he says, he's done this every year or tried to do it every year. So there are a number of different versions of it and each of them is a little different. But nevertheless, I will, we will link to one version and you can listen to that there. So I will stop now. If you wish, you can change your position and if you have something to that you want to explore further in this matter, please bring it up. And we can. Yes, Antonio. I wonder if you'd say a few words about agape being a redemptive quality within each one of us. Okay, let, let me let use his words. Um, he also, he, Martin Luther King, also talks about the next, in a way, the next step or the next aspect is seeing every person as the image of God, which is, again, builds on what some of the commentaries in the Hebrew Bible say uh, the image of God was they is how they're created how everyone is created so using that as the way but let me read what he says he talks about a number of different forms of love in the Greek language and then he says quote the Greek language Greek language comes out with another word for love. It is the word agape. And agape is more than eros. Agape is more than philia. Those were two other forms of love. Eros, uh, as he puts it, is a sort of aesthetic love. And philia is a sort of intimate affection between personal friends and this is a type of love that you have for those persons that you're friendly with your intimate friends or people and so on he talks about that agape is something of the understanding creative redemptive goodwill for all he says for all men but please understand this was 1957 text It is a love that seeks nothing in return. It is an overflowing love. It's what theologians would call the love of God working in the lives of men. And when you rise to love on this level, you begin to love men, not because they are likable, but because God loves them. You look at every man and you love him because you know God loves him. And he might be the worst person you've ever seen. And this is what Jesus means, I think, in this passage where when he says, love your enemy. Um, So this is 
his way of describing it. In a way, when we talk of Buddha nature, when we talk of seeing everyone as selves, everything as selves, when we talk of the Bodhisattva's vow, we're talking about that kind of in that direction, let's say, as all is the never-failing manifestation of this awakened life. And then we go on. And nevertheless, we have to see the many ways we need to almost convince ourselves to allow this to be because how strong we sometimes insist that that person, that event, them doing that, excludes them from my love, much less from, I've used the word, Buddha's love, God's love, or being the image of. So, so in a way, when we start the practice principles with caught in self-centered dream or holding to self-centered thoughts we're talking about noticing what we're believing that blinds us and hinders us from seeing what's always so and it becomes such a habit that we even forget that there is anything so except what we believe and whether it, we believe it about our friends and therefore allow ourselves to be friendly with them or believe it about our enemies and allow ourselves to hate them, whether we believe it about our friend, our family, and then say, okay, they're family and therefore that means I allow myself to love them despite or because of X, Y, and Z. So... That's how do we practice with that? Good. Yeah. How do we practice with what? Be more specific. Instead of taking it as a that, as a big generality, talk about a specific. See, it's always specifics. Practice isn't about getting general rules, but maintaining our ongoing presence and discovering what we're doing to refuse to embrace this intimacy of life. Then, we, when we discover what we're doing, then we could see if there's some specific effort. Or when we discover that what we're not doing, because despite its arising, it's, you know, it just passes. So... Be more specific, and we can respond specifically. Well, I, I was just responding to your talk. Yeah, yeah. So, so be more specific. What is the that that you need to practice with? That you need to practice with? Well, you know, being no. irritated. Ah, good. So be more spe- So, so give me an example of what, how you become irritated when. We could even be irritated with ourselves. 
Who was it? Ah, yes, yesterday or the day before we had an example. Mushin talked about how he became irritated by forgetting to bring something. We could become irritated by noticing what we do or don't do. Or he's not driving the way I would like him to drive and I'm late already. Because <laughs> you know, I didn't, because I didn't, you know, allow just all the things that we all. No, no, it's not all the things. It's the specific things. See, it's always that's why I press practice. If I say it, or our life is always here. There isn't all these things. There is no such thing. That's another fiction that we tell ourselves. My life is all these things. It's true and useful to talk about it that way, but we then have to also transform that into the specific that I now see here, because it's now here where, as you say, I'm getting irritated. I'm feeling this irritation that the driver is not going fast enough. I'm gonna, I'm gonna miss. Whatever it is you're going to miss. I'll be late and then who knows what. So, good. What What is skillful to do? If you, if you remember what the Buddha said right off, that in those situations, hatred doesn't take care of it. Becoming angry doesn't take care of it. Putting others down doesn't take care of it if I pick the precepts. And I'm sure you might maybe sometimes have tried one of those things accidentally when that (laughs) happened. And does it work? Accidentally. (laughs) Well, accidentally because it's a habit. See, it's accidental because it's just the product of ongoing habits. Well, I mean, I think you said being present. Yeah. That's the only thing. Yeah. That's one major thing is being present means being bodily, experiencing what's going on and also noticing at some point, what we're saying or doing or planning on doing or getting ready to do or have already done. Because we often don't notice what we're saying. Whether, even if it's we're just saying to ourselves, ah, that driver's terrible, driver's And even if we don't say it, we still sort of stew in that, this driver's terrible, this driver's ter- terrible, and, and that becomes our life for those moments. This drive is terrible, and then we're stewing in terrible. And what do we get when we stew in terrible? And we have a big opportunity to do this with the election or the inauguration coming up. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's he talks. Uh, uh, he's talking about people that hate you, people that you don't like, people you're afraid of. In fact, he's. I, I, I haven't gotten to it because I'm. Um, I'm trying to do this a little piece at a time, and I can't do the whole thing at once. But he starts. He gives. He he starts off, and I've skipped it. And so does the Hebrew text. Um, talks about nations, and he he starts off this thing about hating your enemies 
of loving your enemies in terms of, as he talks it, between nations and international struggle. And then, towards the end, he gives an example of this. Loving your enemies. Um, and how loving your enemies, in a sense, is redemptive and redeems those you love. But I'll get to that tomorrow. But I'll give you this example. Just, He says... When Abraham Lincoln was running for president, there was a man who ran around the country talking about Lincoln, Lincoln, saying bad things about him, unkind things. Sometimes he would even talk about Lincoln's looks. You don't want a tall, lanky, ignorant person like this as president of the United States, he quotes. He went on and on and on and on and around all over with those attitudes. I'm occasionally sort of condensing. Finally, this Lincoln was elected president. This is the second election. <coughs> and Lincoln was choosing his cabinet. And he came time to choose a secretary of war. And he decided to choose a man by the name of Mr. Stanton. And when Abraham Lincoln told this to his advisors. They said, Mr. Lincoln, are you a fool? Do you know what Mr. Stanton has been saying about you? Do you know what he has done, tried to do to you? Do you know that he tried to defeat you on every hand? Do you know that? Did you read all those derogatory statements that he made about you? And Lincoln said, oh yes, I know about it, I read about it, I heard of him myself. But after looking over the country, I find that he is the best man for the job. So he was made Secretary of War. And a few months later, Lincoln was assassinated. And if you go, and I'm reading what Martin Luther King says, if you go to Washington, you'll discover that one of the greatest words or statements ever made by about Lincoln, by about Lincoln, was made by this man, Stanton. And as Abraham Lincoln came to the end of his life, Stanton stood up and said, now he belongs to the ages. And he made Beautiful statement concerning the character and stature of this man. If Abraham Lincoln had hated Stanton, if Abraham Lincoln Lincoln had answered everything Stanton said, Abraham Lincoln would not have transformed or redeemed Stanton. Stanton would have gone to his grave hating Lincoln, and Lincoln would have gone to his grave hating Stanton. And But through the power of love, Abraham Lincoln was able to redeem Stanton. In a way, it's very simple. The more we hate, the more we become hateful. The more we hate others, the more hate becomes who we are. That's very simple. We know this in practice. We know this in our own life if we look closely. The more... We hold on to anger, greed, hatred in all the very various forms. The more you poison your life, the more you poison the life of the whole universe. This is what I'll say. And poisoning your life, poisoning the universe, poisoning Buddha, you become poison. 
you are poison. So, that's a very simple, I'll call it selfish reason. Not to hold on to hate. Not to believe and feed hate. Very simple. It's a selfish reason. But it's fine to be selfish in that way. In a way, you could say our whole practice is selfishness. We want to stop feeling, experiencing anger, hatred, greed, irritation, and all the various other shadings and forms that are connected to that. Because we want to stop suffering, misery. So, the antidote is simple. Loving and being present is the same thing. You can't love if you're not being present. And if you're truly present, that itself is loving. That itself is intimacy. We we like to think there's these different things, but intimacy, love, presence are shades of each other, facets of each other. But again, I'm talking too much. This was supposed to be your chance. Let's go. So I'm trying to understand then in that moment of recognizing, I think you read one of the texts said something about wanting to destroy. Uh, There's something about destroying. And I, and I, um, um, yeah. I, I, I resonated with that because I think that in the moment that I feel anger or irritation uh-huh. or, um, you know, a mundane example this morning, you know, I went out to my car and it was, it was all, it was all icy and, um, and, and then the, the ice scraper was broken and, and, you know, and I was afraid I was going to be late driving over here and every, everything together and, you know, and I found myself, you know, just, you know, to my, you know, out in the driveway, you know, just cursing at everything, and why do I have this car, why do I have to take this car anyway, and why don't, why is this scraper broken, and why don't I have the good scraper, you know, and like, and then, of course, I wanted to lash out and blame someone, so my husband, <laughs> right there, the natural but, choice, he wasn't there, luckily, he was, you know, uh, asleep, but, um, but I, uh, you know, I knew it was ridiculous in the moments that I was, that I was, saying that stuff to myself, luckily only, um, you know, and then, and then, and then it passed, you know, after a bit, but it, you know, but it took a little while, but I, but I realized, though, that in that moment of wanting to, like, run upstairs, you know, and, and make him to blame for this situation that I was in, it was almost like wanting to destroy him a little bit, you know, I just want to cut you down and show you that you have, because of something you've done or you haven't done, I am now experiencing this thing that I don't want to experience. And 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 so I guess, you know, and like I said, luckily he wasn't right there and I didn't say anything and it passed and then I realized that it was, you know, ridiculous and it was all in my head and everything like that. How, I guess, what I'm getting at is how to practice in the moment, like, let's say the person is there <laughs> and, you know, or whatever. Uh, I mean... Becoming aware is difficult. Yes. And it's okay for it to be difficult. But you know what? It's more difficult... It's difficult to catch it. Yeah, but it's more difficult when we don't catch it. 
See, and I turned, this is something I hadn't read out loud before, but here, when he says there's another reason why you should love your enemies, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated, or the individuals or groups hated. But it is, it is even more tragic, even more runious, runious, I suppose that's how you pronounce this, runous? Runous. Anyway, and injurious to the individuals who hate. You just begin hating somebody and you begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate, you can't walk straight when you hate, you can't stand upright, your vision is distorted. There's nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. He comes to the point that he becomes a pathological case. And for the person who hates, you could stand up and see a person that... No. Yes. Oh, for the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person, and that person can be beautiful, and you will call them ugly. For the person who hates, the beautiful becomes ugly, and the ugly becomes beautiful. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad, and the bad becomes good. For the person who hates, the truth becomes false, and the false becomes true. That's what hate does. You can't see right. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. So, yeah. And I'm reading extensively, extendedly from... Martin Luther King as a way of also honoring him for us together and appreciating appreciating this basic human practice aspect of loving and hating and how natural sometimes hating enemies is and how poisonous hating enemies is hating or elevating ourselves and putting down as the precepts talk about. Okay, but there was, yeah, Kim. I spent the last week at the edge of the culture war, right on the edge. Um, uh, My country is falling apart, and I do mean this because I see things like ethics violations, and I see... um, uh, race relations going back 50 years. I see Supreme Court justices potentially destroying things for the next 50 years. And so there's an enormous amount of holy fuck. And so I started posting on Fox News because I wanted to add a little bit of information into this sea of misinformation that I think Fox News is. And, of course, I immediately get trolled. You know, I'm trying to be very, very respectful, but I immediately get trolled. And then I have to sit there with the reaction of being trolled. Um, And that's hard. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I'm a snowflake. What do you do when you get called snowflake ten times in a row? And it's sort of like, well, I'm, I'm not trying to be aggressive. I'm trying to be, look, here's some information. You don't know that Obamacare is the ACA. Really, you don't even know this. Okay, let me at least say 
that into this environment and maybe a little bit of information goes in. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I'm just trying to say, look, please just look. And there's this enormous violent hatred that gets poured at you when you do this. I still think it's worth doing. But is it skillful doing it there? I don't know. That's the place that needs the information. How else can I do it? They won't take my letters. Who is they? The people that run the Fox News generally aren't going to accept letters from liberals. It's just not done. There's two news, news feeds in the U.S. There's one that I'm listen to mostly, and there's another that other people listen to. So, if you enter in into it from that perspective, what? So you predict you predict what's going to be. I just say here is the information I have. And this is what I see, and then of course there's going to be this enormous amount of trolling. And I've been warned, you know, you're going to get trolled if you do this. I'm like, yep, I'm going to get trolled. But that's what one does. One walks in and says, go ahead and troll me. I'm still going to try to talk. But going, doing such things on the internet, is that the skillful way? Or is there a different way to do things that it's, you want to do? Uh, is there a more personal, a more... Of course, but, but this is an audience that reaches many, many people. This is some place that one needs to be speaking. Well, see, but if you have an agenda, that this is like the Lincoln case. Who else is going to do it? Is there any reason to do it in that venue? It's a venue that needs addressing. It's mm -hmm. one of many. Well, okay, but then you've essentially, you know you're going to get the... Yes, I know I'm going to get trolled. Well, this, and I know I'm going to react. How can you respond instead of using a word? See, once you use a hateful word like saying, I'm getting trolled, you, that's, that's not loving your, the person who's responding to you. That's calling them a troll. Can, can you respond to them in a way that's loving, specifically to the specific whatever. I don't know anything about what you write, what you don't write, but you wrote something, someone else writes something. How can you respond to what they write in a loving way? I, I will say that there are times it's worth and I've said this to some of you, and I do this myself times, to take short or longer fasts from the Internet. <laughs> just, because, just because it's necessary for our own state of, let us say, non-agitation um, and non-addiction. Um, to just, you know, could be a one-day fast, could be a one-week fast, could be a fast from certain sites, just because of how seductive sucking in internet activity, which is all on screens and 
generates all, all sorts of mental, emotional turmoil sometimes which, and has very little person-to-person contact. And you never even know what, what, what's there. So sometimes we need to take that in order to then go back on. It's balanced by a community of people that um, often are incredibly reassuring. Yes, we're out there fighting as well. Okay. A different community. But can you re- respond to those the people that you're <coughs> writing to as not? I'm not fighting them. See, if you say I'm fighting my enemy, see, he. I'll talk a little about it tomorrow where he talks specifically about, well, he talks about a number, there's a number of examples that he gives both in terms of his own life practice, but also in terms of real fighting between nations. Um, And maybe I'll get to some of those. Um, And the Buddha, I mean, that's what the Buddha says. Hatred doesn't cease through hatred, through love alone. So how could you post loving? This is, I'm quoting, this is an eternal law, he says. Whatever you make of that, that I just transmit it. How do we respond to that? But more... How do we see it in our own personal life? Does it does hatred work in our life? Does anger work in our life with other people? Res- putting it out that way, or does it not work in our life? And if it doesn't work, then maybe there's something to reflect on when we do that. Does it work with ourselves? If we get angry at ourselves, does it work to get angry at ourselves about whatever whatever thing it is we become angry about? No, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Good. Then, then, then at least we need to reflect on how do I, I'll say practice, or how do I live this without doing that, because that doesn't work. Or else we can continue doing what doesn't work, and getting the misery and suffering that comes from doing what doesn't work, because that's what happens. That's, in a sense, our practice even when we're just sitting upright in the zendo, and we notice ourselves doing things that so-called don't work in the midst of what's arising, passing. That's our practice reminder. How, and in a way we have to find our practice specifically because despite general, general outlines of what to do, you have to discover in the moment, what do I do right now? Not by asking what do I do, but by doing what. You see, in a way practice becomes our ability and capacity to do out of being present. Uh, I've talked too much. 
enough for today, but I please know that we will continue tomorrow, and I will read a little more from these texts. Maybe I'll repeat some of the things I've read, but I hope uh, there's plenty more to read. And to bring it up, not so that you need to remember any of these texts, uh, they're all freely available, um, but so that they spark us to reflect on our life practice, because that's the point of them. That's the point of us talking together here, is our life practice, and our life practice is the practice with the life of the universe, which is everyone we encounter, which is just nothing but ourself, nothing but this intimacy that we have, this life opportunity. Thank you.